0: Uh, if you have a Bible, could I could invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. It's page 981 in those red pew Bibles. And in a moment, we're going to read verses 22 to uh, probably 33, where Peter walks on the water, at least temporarily. Now, let me say right up front that we will not be singing oceans <laughs> to close this morning. And the reason I'm, the reason I'm saying that. Right at the start is because I'm pretty convinced that during the next 20 or 25 minutes, if I didn't say that, lots of you would be thinking, he's going to ask us to sing Oceans again. For those who are visiting, I need to say that Oceans is one of my favorite songs at the moment, has been for two years, since my sabbatical, since my Camino de Santiago walk, but I don't want to be accused of singing it all the time, because I did ask for it to be sung two weeks ago, okay? So forget Oceans. Great. Oh, he's brilliant. Thank you. No let's no Let's. The other thing the other thing I want to do before we read is this. I wonder if I asked you to raise your hand, and I'm not actually asking you to do this, I'm just wondering. If I asked you to raise your hand, if you've never had any doubts, if you've never doubted as a Christian or wrestled with doubts. I wonder how many, if any, hands would raise. Is doubt-free Christianity even possible or desirable? Is it okay to doubt? I think we sang a line this morning, faith clothed with certainty. Is it okay to doubt, or is it dangerous? Is doubt a sign of weakness, or is it an opportunity for growth? Is doubt the opposite of faith, or is doubt an element of faith? Should followers of Jesus deny doubt, or should they admit that discipleship regularly involves a combination of faith and doubt? The reason I'm kind of starting with these sort of questions is because, as part of the very familiar story that we're going to read, Peter doubts. And Jesus asks him, Why did he do that? And again, for anyone visiting, we as a church are in the middle of a series called Treasure the Questions. where where we're encouraging or we're exploring and and looking at some of the questions that Jesus asked various people in in Matthew's gospel, recognizing that asking questions was one of Jesus' favorite ways of communicating. It was one of his favorite ways of teaching and taking people on a journey of discovery. And so we're reflecting on these questions and trying to think, well, well, what can we learn from them? And today's question is this, why? Did you doubt? Why do you doubt those of you who do have doubts? And before we read this, let me just take a minute to put that question out there and ask you, why do we doubt at times? Why? What causes doubt? What leads to doubt? Let's stand together for the public reading of God's Word. Matthew 14, and we'll start at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began sinking, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Grab a, grab a seat. If you can kind of keep your Bible open, those of you who, who have one open or have it on your screen... Uh, take a look at what else has been happening in this chapter. Take a look above verse 22. Jesus has just fed, this is why he's just dispersed the crowd, Jesus has just fed 5,000 men plus women plus children possibly 15,000 and then some with the contents of one kid's lunchbox and Peter had witnessed that firsthand. He had seen it. He had been there. He also helped to collect 12 basketfuls of leftovers. So why did Peter doubt? Why did Peter doubt Jesus so soon afterwards, given what he had just seen with his own eyes? Like if I had been there, if I had saw what had happened with five fish and two loaves, then that would be it, wouldn't it? Doubts forever dispelled Apparently not, if Peter is anything to go by. But let's also note what's happening or what had happened at the beginning of this chapter. Look above again. Jesus' cousin has been cruelly and tragically beheaded. John the Baptist, that kind of arresting figure, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who prepared the way, has been murdered. And word has reached Jesus, and you would assume his disciples, that John's dead. Not everything goes the way we want it to go. You see, Jesus fixes and he feeds certain people. But he doesn't sort out every situation or intervene every time we expect or would like him to. And therefore, I wonder if that was part of Peter's doubt whenever he started to sink. I I know you can do this, Jesus. Jesus. I know you are able, but at this particular moment, as I feel like I'm going under, and given what happened to your cousin, I have my doubts here. And following on from that, in light, if you were here a few weeks ago, in light of what happened in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus had previously demonstrated his authority over the sea and over the wind and over the waves, where it seemed that Jesus could dictate their behavior by his words, surely this incident, this situation in Matthew 14, wasn't that radically different. And therefore, Peter shouldn't have doubted Jesus for a second, given what he'd already experienced. And yet it seems he did. Let's look at this a bit closer. Because you see, there's more going on in these verses than just the issue of doubt that I think deserves a few comments. The first thing I want you to, to notice is the place where we initially find Jesus. It's the place of solitude and prayer. And I know I've drawn attention to this many, many times, but I don't apologize for drawing attention to it again, because that discipline, that pattern, that rhythm of engagement with people and then withdrawal to be with his father, that is a striking feature of Jesus's life and Jesus's routine. Jesus spent time alone with God on a regular basis in that quiet place where he rested, where he talked, where he dialogued, where he listened, after he did certain things, before he did other things. And his example in this and his associated instructions to us regarding this practice should never, never be overlooked or forgotten. If Jesus, God incarnate, needed this holy habit, then so do we. Please don't neglect the place of solitude and prayer. When was the last time you were there? In that place alone, in dialogue with your Father. And maybe especially when you're feeling tired and when you're feeling low, because remember, Jesus has been surrounded by people. Jesus has been giving out. Jesus has been feeding. Jesus is grieving the loss of his cousin. And so he stops and he retreats and he heads up a mountainside to pray. If you've lost or if you're losing that discipline and habit, please can I urge you to revisit that place this week. As Jesus enjoys some silence and solitude, there's a very different scene developing on the lake below him about a couple of miles from shore, the boat with his disciples on board, and he had sent them out on this boat. There's probably something I should be saying about that, but I'm not going to. But, but Jesus had sent them out there. But this little boat begins to be battered by the waves because it says the wind is turned against it. The word that, that I read from the translation I read from is buffeted. Don't particularly like that word, but anyway, it's, it's a word. Uh, buffeted. But you know what it literally means? It literally means tormented. And there is a hint, or more than a hint, that this swell, this storm, this situation involves a certain degree of demonic hostility. There's a kind of occultic element going on here. And if you were here three weeks ago and we talked about the storm in Matthew 8, I made a similar reference to that. But there's something happening here. It's more, maybe, just a natural storm. But what is interesting this time around, because remember it can't have been that long since the Matthew 8 incident, but what's interesting this time around is there is no sense, at least at this stage, of the disciples being scared or overly anxious. There's, there's no mention of it in the text that the disciples are scared by the storm. Jesus, remember, isn't even in the boat this time, asleep or awake. Yes, the disciples are about to become completely terrified, but it's not because of the storm. And I just wonder, and I must admit I've never thought about this before, I've never noticed this before, but I wonder is the fact that they didn't initially panic in this new storm evidence that they had learned a powerful experience from their previous storm. That the question in Matthew 8 that Jesus had asked them. They'd actually taken that question on board. Do you remember what the question was in Matthew 8? Why are you so afraid? And so this time round, they're not afraid at this point as the storm kicks off. They're not. They've learned their lesson. And sometimes for us, whenever we've been through a storm, and Psalms right, there'll be people here this morning who have been through a storm this week. But sometimes whenever we've been through a storm and we've encountered Jesus and we've met Jesus and we've proved Jesus in it and through it, then the next time the sea gets that little bit choppy, we react and we respond differently, don't we? The disciples don't seem to be alarmed in the storm, but Jesus still comes to them he makes his way out to them walking on the water. He, he leaves his alone time with his father and he enters into their situation. He enters into their circumstances. He enters into the storm that they are now living in, breathing in. And I don't want to make too much of this thought, but is that not a brilliant picture of what Jesus has done for us in the incarnation? Is that, is that not really what Christmas is all about? When he stepped away from his father's immediate presence and he entered our world, when he entered our mess, when he brought transformation, when he brought hope, when he came alongside, when he stepped into, when he drew close by. So we get a picture here of that. Jesus leaves his father's immediate presence and walks towards humanity. The problem is we don't always recognize Jesus's presence. And the disciples certainly didn't. I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen a ghost or thought you have, but it's clearly based on the disciples' reaction. It's a frightening experience. They are convinced. This is what the text says. They are convinced that a kind of disembodied spirit of some kind is approaching them. A phantom, that's what the word really means, ghost, that is written here. There's a phantom coming towards us. And so they cry out. Now you see the terror and the fear kick in. But Jesus immediately speaks. And he immediately says three short sentences. And you see if you hear nothing else and you remember nothing else, and if you just want to take one thing away from this morning, please take these three short sentences away. Because here's what Jesus immediately says. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And when Jesus comes to us in the storms of life, and when we're frightened, and when we're unsure, those are three of the most important, potentially comforting, hope affirming sentences ever we will hear from the lips of Jesus. And do you know something they continue to echo into our lives. And for some of you this morning, there's a sense in which this is all you need to hear. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. The first is a challenge definitely influenced by the second, but to start with, it's a personal challenge. Take courage, says Jesus. In other words, take heart. Courage is the quality of mind or spirit that enables a person to face difficulty, danger, and pain without fear. And for his disciples in this moment, and for some of us in the situation that we find ourselves right now, that is a big, but yet that's a crucial ask. Take courage. Face your fears. Don't let them deface you. When everything within you wants to back down or lie down, and there be some here this morning who are going through a storm, and this is all you want to do—you just want to back down, you just want to lie down, you just want to give up, you just want to pack it in—and Jesus says, "Take courage. Take heart. Face your fears." But then hot on its heels is this huge assurance and comfort, it is I. In other words, Jesus is here, Jesus is present, Jesus is with. This is not a ghost, this is not a phantom, it's me, says Jesus. And apparently whenever Jesus uses that phrase in the gospels, it is I, it also means, it also employs, implies, it is I am which might sound like Brad grammar, but that's why way we should literally translate it, it is I am. This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples when, which means this was a conscious echo of the divine name of Yahweh, which God had shared with Moses. So when Jesus says to his disciples, it is I, it is I am, what they are hearing at some level is the assurance that none other than God Almighty is with them. And again, for some of us, as we face up to our current fears, we need to know that the great I am is with us. You're not alone. You're not alone in that hospital ward. You're not alone in your bed as you stare at the stealing tears come streaming down your face. You're not alone. In that storm that you're going through, in that relational storm that you're going through at the moment. Take courage. It is I. And in light of that reality, in light of that truth, and that fact, Jesus then says, "Don't be afraid. You see, fear breeds fear. And the more that you focus on fear, the more exaggerated, the more distorted it becomes. And yet whenever we're in a scary place and whenever we feel out of our depth, whenever we feel out of control, it's hard not to be fearful, no matter what anyone says to us. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And it's interesting, isn't it, how that phrase, that statement, that command of Jesus, or a variation of it like fear not, is one of the most common things that Jesus says to people in the gospel and Gospels on a whole variety of times. Apparently over 20 times Jesus says, don't be afraid, fear not. And when fear takes hold and tightens its grip, we end up paralyzed and we end up unable to see a way forward, to see a way out. And when that becomes our experience, do you know what we need to do? We need to take courage. We need to recognize the presence of Jesus and we need not to be afraid. And so we go back to the story. But please, if you hear nothing else, just remember those three phrases. Because the minute Jesus says those three statements, Peter's the first to react. And I love this. Do you notice what Peter's first reaction is? Lord, if it's you. Did you get that? Lord, if it's you, which kind of sounds like he's still not sure. And maybe sometimes despite what we hear, despite what we even see, we still find it difficult to accept that Jesus is here. And therefore, we look for more. We want more. We, it's a bit like Peter. Like, if this is you, Jesus. And then we add some other conditions. We want more evidence. We want more proof. We want more assurance And so even in light of what I've said today about take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. If you're sitting there and you're still struggling in the storm that you're facing at the minute, again, in the words of Jess Glynn, don't be too hard on yourself. And Peter is still at this if it's you stage, but then he moves on. If it's you, he says, tell me to come, tell me to come to you on the water. And then Jesus just says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. And Peter now accepts it would seem that it is Jesus. It seems that those three phrases have now actually sunk a little bit deeper. They've started to resonate a little bit clearer. And therefore, he starts walking towards Jesus on the water. I was reading this week that there are three kinds of takers or types of takers in the world. There are caretakers, undertakers, risk takers. Peter is often seen and described as the latter, isn't he? He's a risk taker. He's the one that's out of the boat and we all have read the book. If you want to walk in water, you got to get out of the boat. Isn't that it? Don Ortberg. And so he's the one that's walking in the water and he's the one that's getting closer to Jesus. But then we all know what happens is his outlook changes. And that can easily happen. We're we're, kind of heading in the right direction. We're doing what we've been called to do. We're coming to Jesus. We're approaching Jesus. We're going towards Jesus. And then all of a sudden, our focus shifts and our circumstances become all too apparent again. And the reality of what's going on around us grabs our attention. What happens? We get distracted. We know what Jesus has said. It's still ringing in our ears. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. But actually, see when you're having to take the risk, the trust See, when you've been willing to go for it, you find it hard to maintain the focus in light of your prevailing circumstances. And so we see the wind, as Peter did. And we start to get afraid. You don't see wind. But you feel it. And you feel its effects. And at times, how we feel determines whether we stay focused or not. Peter felt the wind, he saw its effects and although Jesus was still there, do you know what happened? Although Jesus was absolutely right in front of him, he hadn't moved anywhere, hadn't gone anywhere, he's still approaching him. Peter started to get scared and sink and for some of us, that is where we find ourselves this morning and Jesus is there. He's in our lives, he hasn't abandoned us and we haven't abandoned him but trusting him and staying focused on him in the midst of our current storm is so hard. And it just feels like the fear levels are rising and we're beginning to go under. And so Peter does what we absolutely need to do. And this is what I, I mean, if you're here, please will you do this? He cries out. He just cries out. He cries out, Lord. It's the second time he's addressed Jesus as Lord. It's a recognition, Look, Jesus, you're still in control. Despite how this looks, despite how this feels, Lord, you're still in control. So, Lord, save me. And Jesus is his only hope. He can't survive with him. He needs him. He can't deal with this on his own. Lord, save me. And what happens? Jesus does. And it says immediately, it's the second time we read that word. It's in verse 27. Immediately, Jesus reaches out and catches Peter. And so this morning, some of us need to hear those three statements of Jesus in light of what we're going through, and That's enough. For some of us, we're struggling to leave it at that, and so we need to take a risk. We need to do something. For some of us, we actually need to do something this morning that takes us out of our comfort zones, but we need to realize that that's going to require total focus. And there are others who have taken a risk, who have stepped out of the boat, who have trusted Jesus, but you know something you've lost? focus, due to your circumstances, due to the storms of life that are, are just, just happened to all of us, and so you've taken your eyes off Jesus, and you're going under, and you need to cry out, Lord, save me, and then that brings us down to what Jesus says next. We're nearly done. Because before he gets into the boat with Peter and the wind dies down, that's what happens when they get back into the boat, but then he says this to Peter. You of little faith, why did you doubt? I want you to note that it's not you of no faith. Peter had faith. But you know something, Peter's faith wasn't always the strongest. It certainly wasn't the strongest here. It wasn't the strongest on future occasions. This wasn't a one-off, weak moment for this guy whom Jesus then said, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Peter's faith wavered at times. And Jesus needed to call him in that, and Jesus needed to challenge him on that, not to put Peter down, not to make him feel like a failure, but to encourage him, to drive him deeper into his faith as he continued working in his life. And why did you doubt? It's a rhetorical question, or it seems to be. There's no answer given on Peter's part, and maybe there didn't need to be. Why? Because I want to suggest to you that maybe Jesus knew that his followers were regularly going to experience a combination of faith and doubt. And it's not necessarily a sign of weakness to doubt. It's a sign of honesty. It's a sign that you're wrestling with your faith in Jesus, which constantly is being stretched through the storms of life. It's constantly being stretched through the needing to take risks, through the needing to step out of the boat, and that's hard. And so you begin to doubt, as Jesus, am I going to be able to walk in this water? And it happens through having to take courage. Because at times I doubt, and I need to hear you again, Jesus say to me, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And doubt here means or it suggests this idea of going in two different directions at once. It means we feel pulled. We know which direction we should head in and we should go in. We know that we should trust Jesus more, but we've got questions. We've got questions and we are a bit uncertain and we don't possess all the knowledge and so doubt creeps in and for Peter, despite seeing 5,000 plus people miraculously fed, despite being in a previous boat that had nearly been shipwrecked before Jesus calmed the storm, despite seeing Jesus walk on water and despite the fact that he was able to do so himself for a period of time, Peter experienced doubt and I reckon we probably all will. And although Jesus kept and keeps proving himself to be trustworthy, there may be times when doubt kicks in and I'm not sure we can avoid that reality, especially whenever we get that sinking feeling and the storms are all too real. But you know what is essential? And please hear me on this. As we reflect, as I have no doubt Peter did, I have no doubt, (laughs) as I am sure Peter did, as we reflect, as I'm sure Peter did on that question, why did you doubt? We have got to make sure that like the disciples in verse 32, have a look at this. We maintain an attitude of worship and surrender. Reverence and confession as we acknowledge, do you know something, Jesus? Truly, you are the Son of God. That's That way we maintain focus. That way we keep our eyes above the waves. That way we don't stay there too long.